the rebroadcast of a conversation with Neil Postman, the American educator. The book is Amusing Ourselves to Death, published by Viking. This is a rebroadcast in accordance with our idea through the months of July and August. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we, at least, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore their technologies that undo their capacity to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. I was thinking that's the very opening of a book, and a very provocative book. It is like one that's right on the button, read by the author, Neil Postman, who educator and social observer. The book is called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and the subtitle is Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business, published by Viking. And I was thinking, Neil, you were a guest before on the subject of education way back, and the difficulty there, and the problem, the dilemmas, and now we come to something really big. Something's happened to us. And TV is a key, but let's stick with Orwell and Huxley. We always think of, my God, Big Brother hasn't taken us over, but it's not Orwell who raised the American dilemma. That might be the Soviet Union dilemma, yes, heavy I, hand, but it's not the U.S. dilemma. I think uh, Orwell's prophecies obviously do have relevance for the Soviet Union and uh, other Eastern European countries and other places in the world. And certain Central American countries. But for those uh, uh, places that are pleased to call themselves Western democracies, uh, I do think uh, Huxley's vision is uh, much more uh, apt uh, in a way. He, he wrote, Huxley wrote a book in, in the late 1950s called um, a Brave New World Revisited, in which uh, he compared his 1930s book, Brave New World, with Orwell's book, which had come out in 1948. And he makes um, uh, a very trenchant remark. He says that in Orwell's book, people are controlled by inflicting pain. But in my book, people are controlled by inflicting pleasure. Yeah. And he thought that he was more on the mark mm. for what was happening to us than, uh, than Orwell was. Because now we're having, there is a relative freedom, but it doesn't matter. That's the point. Case in point, poetry. We know that there's a heavy hand of the Soviet Union and some of the poets of the past and present. You know, some are free, but some are heavy hand. We do know that's considered very important there, the poetry. And kids by the thousands attend poetry readings. Here, poets are absolutely free than they want. However, who gives a damn? <laughs> this, in a way, is a, is a reaction. Yes, is one and I, I think it's worth saying, Studs, that um, although... Uh, History is no longer a favorite subject of almost anyone in America. Um, that uh, Americans have too quickly forgotten that much of the vitality and uh, intellectual dynamism of America in the 18th and 19th century came from 
uh, our devotion to the printed word, perhaps not so much uh, poetry, but certainly um, uh, prose and uh, uh, inspiring political rhetoric, and uh, even to some extent uh, novels. Americans have had always been uh, great readers. Let's stick with this, this subject. That's in a chapter called Typographic America, the printed word. Now let's begin. The country is new, colonial America, and now it's uh, independence. And the guys who wrote the stuff, the Declaration and the Constitution, were highly literate and cultured men. Yes, and many people, when they uh, hear someone say that, agree immediately that they were, and then uh, add that uh, this probably was not the case for the bulk of the population, but that's not true. Uh, if you go back to the late 17th century when the New England colonies were being formed, uh, our studies of literacy rates suggest that those people may have been among the most literate people who had ever lived uh, on the planet. Uh, throughout the uh, 18th century, uh, Americans were not only book-centered people, but especially uh, pamphlet-centered people, newspaper-centered people. Their politics, their religion, uh, their um, even their amusements were all organized around the uh, written word. Between 1640 and 1700, this is pre-revolution, the literacy rate men in Massachusetts and Connecticut was between 89% and 95%. Well, that's because mostly males at the mm. time. Something like that's quite probably the highest concentrate literate males to be found anywhere in the world at the time. And then you go on, to write, and the Bay Psalm book, and I suppose the preachers and were very eloquent. You pointed that during the Great Awakening. Yes. Well, of course, part of this uh, uh, resides in the fact that... Um, these people were Protestants who uh, were under a special obligation to be literate so that they could uh, read the Bible. Of course, they also uh, read uh, Tom Paine's Common Sense, uh, which um, uh, was published, I think, in January of 1776. And by March of that year, something like you have it right in front yeah, of you. There it is. is it? Common <laughs> Sense, published in on January tenth, seventy, sold more than a hundred thousand copies by March. In nineteen eighty-five, that book, considering the population mm -hmm. contrast, was to sell eight million copies in two months to match the proportion of Payne's book and the population at the time. So these were uh, we're talking about uh, highly literate people who were accustomed to um, sifting through arguments on the written page. Uh, we're talking about people who had easy access to written forms. Uh, and uh, uh, I know I'm sometimes accused of um, having an obsession with the, writ uh, with the written word. One of the reviewers said that. Um, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but one could say that the early Americans definitely had an obsession with the written word and with, uh, I think you would be, uh, you would like uh, this, Studs, also with a kind of oral performance that was very much rooted in the written word. Not only uh, storytelling, Americans were uh, famous for their storytelling abilities, but for their capacity to express themselves uh, on complex subjects in oral performance. When you speak of the Americans, you're talking now about the carpenter as well as the preacher. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about the blacksmith as well as the doctor. Well, I mean, if we, if we take Tom Paine, yeah. I, I think I mentioned this in the book, it's, it's, not, it's not something that a anyone else finds important, but I do, that um, a lot of your listeners know that there's always been a controversy as to whether or not William Shakespeare wrote his plays. And one of the arguments against Shakespeare is that he came from two humble beginnings, to have developed such a magnificent style. Interestingly enough, no one has ever brought this question up about Tom Paine, who, uh, uh, whose father was a corset maker in England, 
and who came to America without a penny in his pocket, was from the lowest uh, possible class of people in England, and yet he wrote magnificent, inspiring prose, and no one's ever said, how could such a poor person uh, without a formal education have done this? The answer is that most people in those days, the carpenter as well as the preacher, knew their way around a written uh, English. The very fact that common sense eventually may have sold up to 400,000 copies and a population of 3 million, quoting from Neil Postman's book, today would have to sell 24 million copies. The only, here's the part I like, the only communication event to match Payne's common sense in readership or those who enriched would be the attention of today in America today would be the Super Bowl. That's really yeah. stunning. The Super Bowl would probably beat it because I think about 70 million people uh, watch it. But uh, it's, it's very unlikely that any book, at least, uh, well, any book, could do 24 million copies in, in a year, and certainly not a book of that type that is a non-fiction. And we're talking about earlier, too, the readings of some of the pamphlets and some of the magazines and the papers, The Spectator and The Tattler, and these bookstores are full of this stuff. But the point interests me is not simply read by the intellectuals of the time, but pretty much everybody you're talking about. Yes. Our present librarian of Congress, Daniel Borston, who, of course, uh, some listeners will know is a distinguished historian, uh, especially of American history, has done some very good work on this uh, question. That is, who was reading in America in the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries? His conclusion is that just about everyone was. Yeah that there was no um, center of literate culture in America like Boston or New York, although many people might think that was the case, that basically uh, everyone was involved in the, the literate productions of, of the culture. And this really didn't begin to change uh, much until the mid-19th century. Yeah. But even as late as then, uh, Americans were uh, captivated by uh, not only uh, political uh, rhetoric of some sophistication, but also a political um, uh, oral performance. Even as late as then, when Charles Dickens, again, visited America in 1842, his reception equaled the adulation we offer today for a television star or a quarterback or Michael Jackson. And Dickens wrote, to a friend in England, in London. I can give you no conception of my welcome. There never was a king or emperor upon earth so cheered and followed by the crowds, entertained at splendid balls and dinners and waited upon by public bodies. If I go out in a carriage, the crowd surrounds it and escorts me home. If I go to the theater, the whole house rises at one man, the timbers ring. Now we're talking about a writer, mm -hmm. an author of another country. That's being right. on a, so obviously there's a respect for literature, though these weren't intellectuals alone. Mm -hmm. and that, they couldn't have got that reception. So it must have been pretty well, much Well, I, I think uh, uh, I mentioned someplace uh, that uh, by uh, about uh, 18, um, uh, roughly 1850s, we could almost say that America uh, was producing or was in the middle of one of the most glorious... Uh, uh, ages of literature any place. I mean, you'd practically have to go back to the Elizabethan age to find a group of people uh, uh, of such uh, literary quality. I mean, we're talking about Mark Twain, uh, uh, Hawthorne, uh, Melville, uh, Emerson, Poe. Uh, uh, these people uh, were the product of this age of typography or literacy that we're talking about. And we're going to come to, uh, before we come to what happened, and I know you're not anti-technological per se, we've got to come to, well, that'll come out later, but something happened. But before that, you mentioned the oral tradition. This is, and we're talking about the printed word. Now America, United States, and talk and discourse. And you speak of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Yes. Quite extraordinary. Uh, there were 
uh, what most people mean by the Lincoln-Douglas debates were seven debates they had uh, here in uh, Illinois when they were running for the United States Senate. Uh, but in fact, Lincoln and Douglas had had many debates before that, and typically a Lincoln-Douglas debate, for example, one I particularly studied was in a place called Ottawa, Illinois, would last for about seven hours. What, would, what happened in Ottawa, as I remember, is that uh, Lincoln spoke for three hours, Douglas spoke for three hours, and then Lincoln had an hour to rebut. When they went to the next town, they switched. Then Douglas did three hours, Lincoln three, and Douglas had an hour to rebut. Um, these were uh, uh, complicated, obviously extended uh, oral performances. Uh, uh, both speakers uh, assumed that the audience not only could understand what they were saying and process complex uh, sentences, but that the audience had a background uh, which permitted them to understand the references that the speakers were making. Now, uh, if anyone just wants to get a sense of the contrast between those times and our times, you can do, well, you can just think of the Mondale-Reagan debates, where someone like uh, Barbara Walters will say to the president, uh, ask some question like, what do you think the solution is to the problem in the Middle East? You have three minutes, Mr. President, after which Vice President Mondale will have one minute to rebut. Well, I don't think Lincoln and Douglas would have accepted such conditions. I think they, I like to think they would have turned to Miss Walters and said, well, what sort of people do you think we are? We're, we're running for high political office. It is impossible to It happens to you got the right people, but it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, uh, uh, also, I think people might just ask themselves whether they think there's an American audience any place today that could uh, put up with seven hours well, of oral th think discourse. Think of that, because now, who was the audience? By the way, who, who comprised the audience, the Lincoln-Douglas Well, uh, we go back to your carpenters. I mean, these yeah. were, uh, uh, in no sense, uh, intellectuals or... Well, if it was uh, out of Illinois, they had to be farmers to a great extent. Yes. The, and, and true, the, there, were, there were immigrants there, uh, that's for sure, and there probably were uh, many people in those audiences who were uh, illiterate, but nonetheless, these were people who were accustomed to... Uh, lengthy and complex oratory, and for whom oratory was part of their social life, perhaps like those Russian youngsters mm. you referred to before who go by the thousands to listen yeah. to poetry uh, uh, being recited. We have a case here of thousands of ordinary people, farmers and carpenters and laborers, doing the same thing only, f in this case, for political talk. Something else was happening at that same time, or shortly after the Lyceums came into being. Now we come to the lectures, jammed lectures, by the way, in small towns as well. We know about Mark Twain, of course, in the Chautauqua circuit. Yes. Emerson did were, quite a lot of this. Emerson he got paid 50 bucks yeah. a lecture. Yeah. Uh, and uh, t But Twain, Twain uh, uh, he says in his autobiography that he was getting 250 bucks, but only in the big towns. So the smaller towns, uh, it was much less. But the lecture halls were jammed. And the subjects were, I suppose, history, philosophy, literature. And, of course, humor, that humor. many of the uh, people we think of as uh, our 19th century humorists were basically writers. Uh, 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 today, we think of, when we think of humorists, uh, I suppose someone like Bob Hope uh, would come to mind, or Jerry Lewis, or, or Don Rickles. They're not writers. Uh, the uh, Nash and, and uh, Twain and... Hope you read. Yes, and those people really uh, were, uh, considered themselves essentially writers. And what they would do is um, uh, tell their funny stories when they went on the lecture tour. We're talking now about the spoken word and the written word and exposition and content that was there that was listened to and dug 
This is what we're talking about. Right. Now, when you said Lincoln-Douglas debates seven hours, think about the presidential debates now. What does it remember about the Carter-Reagan debate? Reagan winning by saying, there you go again. What does it remember about the Mondale-Hart debate? Mondale winning by saying, where's the beef? So we're talking about the Slogans. trivialization. Yes. Well, yes. trivialization. We're talking about trivia. Right. And nothing to do with content. Right. And as a matter of fact, on the Reagan-Mondale debates, uh, I don't know how the Chicago papers treated them, but in New York, with the exception of the Times, the newspapers pretty much treated them as if they were boxing matches. Uh, headlines like Reagan KOs Mondale or Mondale outpoints uh, uh, Reagan uh, as if it were some sort of a spectacle and as if no one really uh, expected there to be any serious content. You would think that if two men are debating for a high political office, they would use that opportunity to express what their political program is and so on. You recall the key moment, not that Reagan would have lost, he would have won under mm. any circumstance, but the key moment was that last debate. Is Reagan going to hold his own against Mondale? Do we remember one word of substance of it? The fact is he spelled right and finished the mm. sentence, therefore he won, mm. he held his own. Had nothing to do with substance at all. Here's an interesting point, if we could go back to the Kennedy-Nixon debates, there, there have been many studies done about those debates, and most of them show that people who listened to those debates on radio thought that Nixon had edged Kennedy. Those who watched on television, of course, thought that Kennedy had won. Now, fortunately for Kennedy, many more people watched on television than listened on radio. But I've always thought that was interesting because yeah. On radio, one is uh, uh, apt to listen to content, to the the substance of the sentences being uttered. On television, uh, this almost never happens, and everyone uh, probably remembers who saw these debates. Remember what that Nixon said. There he was sabotaged. Makeup man sabotage. <laughs> yeah, now right. we come to trivia, bone deep. That's right. There's such a thing as bone deep trivia. <laughs> it's a contradiction in terms somewhere. But uh, the uh, trivia taking over, we're coming closer and closer to the core of well, your book, and, uh, the nature of television. Uh, this would effect. be the opposite of bone deep if we want to talk about flesh, yeah. uh, flesh surface. Uh, I think it, it also has to be pointed out, as I do in this book, that uh, we had a president once who was 325 pounds. William Howard Taft. Right, our 27th president. Now, uh, the, there's nothing in the Constitution that forbids a 325-pound person from being president. So the situation we're in now, however, leads me to think that while the Constitution may not forbid it, television forbids it. Do you know, as you say that, when Cranston for a time was considering running for president and was a candidate, Cranston, he was bald and cadaverous. And invariably the question was, he can't make it. Yes. Look, he looks cadaverous, he looks bald. Imagine Lincoln, homely, gangling, wart on his chin. You know? Yes, and, and let me add one other thing. I, maybe one of your listeners will, will be able to correct me on this, but I am unable to find any photograph of Abraham Lincoln in which he is smiling. Uh, and it's practically impossible to find a photograph of Ronald Reagan in which he is not smiling. Uh, as you meant to imply, Lincoln would be an awful we know what Lincoln on the readings of the Bible and Shakespeare and studying self-taught. The other day, Gore Vidal pulled one off. You know about that. Vidal was saying a tragedy has occurred in the United States intellectual life. The library of President Ronald Reagan was destroyed and both books were lost. <laughs> and he didn't finish, he didn't finish coloring the second one. <laughs> Well, it's a joke. At the <laughs> yes. same time, it may not be too far removed yes. from reality. Well, we know. yes. Reagan, uh, uh, not to advertise myself any more than I need to here, but uh, I did a piece recently for uh, The Nation 
about the the what might be the possibilities of ni- in 1988. Now, I think you know that uh, Charlton Heston was thinking of running for the Senate in California. He decided instead to take a, a role in Dynasty Two, which I think studs, was essentially yeah. a political decision on his yeah. part yeah. because it's much uh, more desirable to be seen every week on television than to be. You know, stuck running in the for the Senate chambers. or the presidency, the choice of that as against taking part in Dynasty Two, I think tells the whole story. Because now we come to the trivialization yes. of everything, and this is the title of your book: "Is Amusing Ourselves to Death." public discourse in the age of show business. Now getting closer and closer to TV. But before that, and again, I make it clear, you're, you're not a Luddite. I mean, you're not for the destruction of machines. I am I not. It, okay. We do know TV, for example, has played a role in the civil rights movement. And uh, I think also and in, in uh, uh, helping to amplify the anti-war movement in Vietnam, no question about it. So um, this book uh, does not uh, speak against everything uh, the TV has, uh, brings us. What it does speak about is t- the uh, consequences for what we call public discourse that television and some other media but especially television. Yeah. But leading up to that, because your book, it, it goes step by step, which I like, the oral, the written word, the printing press, and we come to the telegraph, the telegraph preceding movies and phonograph and radio and TV, the telegraph. Something, and it was Thoreau who made perhaps the most mm. pertinent of all comments. No one's opposed to the telegraph. No, you're saying you're going to kill mm. the telegraph because it's important, of course. And yet, on page 65 of Neil Postman's book, by the way, I think this book is a key one for our time. He was in Walden, Thoreau wrote, we're in great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas. But Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. We're eager to tunnel under the Atlantic and bring the old world some weeks nearer to the new. But perchance the first news that will leak through into the broad, flapping American ear will be that Prince at Adelaide has the whooping cough. If that isn't 1985, I don't know what is. Yes, uh, 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 Thoreau uh, uh, was um, uh, was right on to <laughs> this uh, this development because I think what he uh, understood was that uh, the telegraph was going to change completely what people meant even by information. And indeed, uh, if you track the history of the telegraph, you see that's, that's what happened, that information became a commodity that you could sell and buy. And the penny newspapers of the time picked right up on this and understood that you now can uh, do newspapers about Princess Adelaide's having the whooping cough or to take it up to our time, Rock Hudson having AIDS or whatever. Uh, or Princess Di uh, visiting San Laurent. Yes, so that um, the notion of information as something critical to a person's life uh, uh, information as uh, material with which to do something and to act on the world began to disappear, and uh, we re- it's really the telegraph that moves us into what people like to call the information uh, society. And then, of course, after the telegraph, we get that whole dazzling uh, array of technologies that you mentioned before, everything from... Uh, from uh, movies to radio and right up through television. And to television we come now. You said public discourse. And we think of all those who listen to the speakers. I know that even in the early 20s, Bob La Follette up in Wisconsin, the old progressive senator, he'd speak for hours to the farmers there. And once I recall, one guy told me his father was there, and he was a farmer from Wisconsin, and he said, Bob spoke about five hours, and it was about 11 at night then. And an old farmer gets up, and he apologized to the audience and to the He says, Bob, he's called him Bob, 
I got to forgive me. I got to go because the cows, you know, I got to get up about three o'clock or four. So mm -hmm. forgive me. I do want to hear it. It's okay. He was the only guy who left. <laughs> and so you see, there, still yes. there was that. Right. And it was a hangover of that and hunger. Even, and even to some extent, Studs, I think uh, it's not stretching it to say that Roosevelt, uh, FDR, might have been our last... Um, major political figure who um, uh, based his appeal mostly on a, uh, a discourse, oral uh, discourse, and uh, I mean, people have often commented on his fireside Can, can you imagine the current president saying, I see one-third of a nation ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, who speaks of malefactors, phrases like that, malefactors of great wealth. Imagine those phrases of that concept being used. That, well, it is indeed yeah. very hard to imagine. And yet, in a way, one doesn't want to come down too hard on President Reagan. Not that I'm against that in principle, but, but only that uh, 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 he is himself simply a product Absolutely. of the oh, new of conditions. Of course, there's no way it wrecks on him. It's that he is naturally right and perfect to be so popular at this particular something has happened to us. That's, That's right. What you're and about. and the argument I tried to make is that uh, the new media with television at its center, and that's important because television is a visual medium and so powerfully uh, alluring uh, uh, are its images, that the effect has been to uh, alter, change, all the forms of public discourse into forms of entertainment. So that, and this is really what Huxley was yeah. talking about. We come back to Aldous yes, Huxley again. That, that now it's not just politics and political campaigns, yeah. but it's news, it's religion, it's commerce, it's education. As this is filtered through television. Every aspect, television all encompassing, yes. from weather to news, and that very point, one of the most covered events was that of the American hostages in Iran. I don't think anything was as much covered. 300 and some days it was. Walter Cronkite saying, how many, maybe it open every day or close it. Mm. 25th day of captivity, 50th, 100th day of captivity. And yet, you ask the question, what do we know about Iran? Do we know what language they speak? Do we know what religion they really practice? How about simply the question, where is Iran? Where is and Iran? You would be surprised how many people who are asked this question so I, don't know the answer. Day after day that was seen, commented upon by the correspondents there and here, and yet we use the phrase information revolution, which is, of course, almost a burlesque phrase. Mm. Well, you see, people the people in television like to say that television is a window to the world, and there is a sense, I suppose, in which it is, but it's a very curious window. In the, in the case of uh, news, uh, I think what's happening is that television uh, creates a, a situation where Americans know of many things, but about very little. Yeah. And, and, and that is in part because television is not a very good medium for providing people with context or background or even implications. As you're saying this, something, as a phrase Wright Morris, the novelist photographer used, we're in TV, are in communications. The way they use, what do you do? I'm in communications, but not communication. Mm -hmm. See, what is communicated? And so we come perhaps the most provocative of all your reflections on it. And as we hear, we've got to improve TV. And there's so much junk on TV. And you're pointing out that the junk is the best thing on TV. Yes, well, in, in this sense that I don't think uh, Dynasty or Dallas or any of those programs that are uh, that we might call light entertainment threaten the republic in any way. I think it's rather programs like 60 Minutes and uh, 
political campaigns that are conducted via 30-second TV commercials uh, and, and religion on television, which emphasizes the charisma of the preacher and offers people nothing really to think about in terms of theology and ritual and tradition. I think it's that type of program that is much more dangerous because that's about serious stuff. Most Americans accept, I imagine, that Dallas and Dynasty are light entertainment, something to engage their interest in us for a short time, and I suppose there's always been something like that in any culture. But to change what we mean by politics, to change what we mean by a debate, to change what we mean by information, that's serious. Yeah. But you also, now we come, here, here's going to be the audience now pricking up its ears. You find those we think are so good for because you are an educator. So I know you best as an educator, and your books have been very provocative on that score. Very good, challenging the traditional attitude toward education. Sesame Street, the Electric Theater, which parents watch. Oh, our kid learns. You're saying that's none, really none provoking, none thought provoking on the part of the. Uh, well, uh, uh, not yes, yes, but not only that. See, one of the mistakes that uh, people often make when they think about education is that they think that only one thing uh, is learned at a time. Uh, it may be true, it may not, I won't dispute it. The children who watch Sesame Street learn their letters and numbers faster than children who don't. But when you watch Sesame Street, you learn some other things too. One of the things that children learn is that um, uh, entertainment and learning are inseparable. And they come to expect this. They come almost to define education in those terms that Sesame Street lays out, which is that if something is not instantly accessible and immediately entertaining, then it's not worthwhile. And I've spoken to teachers all over the country who, in fact, have to cope now with the consequences of a Sesame Street generation because what they have to do is fill up their classrooms with visual stimulation. They have to try to replicate in their classrooms what Sesame Street has done on the television screen. This, in, in some sense, could be the most dangerous yeah. program of all. Oh, because teaching to you, educating, learning to you, as I understand it, is, is is that it's something which the child, the young person, the student, is stimulated to think further. And it need not be something he gets immediately, but thinks, we, I use the word here as think, I suppose, has to think it through. The habit of thinking is what and, we're talking And about. implied in uh, just the way you're saying that is that thinking is arduous. It, it isn't always easy. Yeah. It can, uh, in fact, it could even sometimes be painful. But the message of the electric company in Sesame Street is that thinking is never painful. It is not arduous. It is, uh, uh, and it always happens to the accompaniment of music. There's one other aspect that's missing also in, in Sesame Street, that is imagination, peaking the imagination that is not on the screen. Imagine that scene by Big so Well, of course, this... Imagination. Yes. And this is generally a problem of, of, uh, of uh, all uh, television in that it tends to supply us with all the concrete images that our imagination would have to supply if uh, we didn't have television. You know, the, I'm talking about the sort of people who, who don't like to see a movie made of a novel they've read because they have imagined what the characters and situations are like. They don't want Steven Spielberg or someone else to do their imagining. You know them. there was an actress years ago, Ruth Draper. Ruth Draper did a one-woman theater. She would do various characters by herself. She was quite magnificent. And I remember once asking her about audience reactions. What I do is suggest the audience imagines the rest. So this is what the teacher does, I suppose. So yes, that's a case in uh, point. And that general principle, I think, can be applied to a number of uh, experiences. 
not only is it uh, desirable for audiences to imagine, but it's also desirable for audiences in other contexts to question and to be critical and to reflect on what is said to them. But if nothing really is said to them, and instead what is provided them uh, are concrete, uh, dynamic imagery to which they are only to respond with gross emotions, let's then go, that's a yeah. significant change. Now let's come to one of the most serious of all television programs ever. So we've been told, and so it was advertised. And that, of course, is the day after. This is the what would happen if there a nuclear war and the, remember the furor that caused and mm -hmm. by God, Jerry Ford wants an answer and there's going to be a program called America. You know that. Yeah. Spelled with a K, which the Soviets take over. Uh, because a day after. So what are your thoughts? Because you have a sequence well, on Well, yes, it. what I did is try to, uh, I paid very close attention to what uh, was called um, the, the discussion. Uh, which uh, had a number of uh, very distinguished uh, men like Henry Kissinger and Carl Sagan and Robert McNamara and Elie Wiesel. Um, and uh, I, uh, to my horror, although I really expected it, this wasn't what serious people normally refer to as a discussion at all. These were little uh, uh, performances uh, given by each person an image was projected. Kissinger, of course, is always projecting the same sort of image. No one had any opportunity to question what anyone else said. Uh, they didn't have the time to do it. Um, they, uh, I, I bring that up in the book to show an important point, namely that we have a new definition as a result of television, not only of what a debate is, but also what a discussion is. And uh, uh, I thought the uh, so-called discussion after, um, after that movie was shown is a very good example of how television very subtly alters our definition of discourse. Yeah. Of course, there was no discourse. No. The only one who came closest to it, Studs, was Sagan, who spoke, as, as I remember it, for about three and a half minutes uh, on the possibility of a nuclear freeze. But no one asked him any questions about his proposal. Uh, uh, I, I suppose when I think about it, I, I would be in favor of a nuclear freeze. But you know, the key to what you just said is three and a half minutes. That's right. Three and a, we're talking about the fate of the planet. And he had three and a half minutes. On the day I write this essay, a Marine Corps general has declared that nuclear war between the United States and Russia is inevitable, and it's shortly followed by a series of commercials that in the instant diffuse the import of the news. And so you have, this is every day, even you watch the news, and you have a mother, grief-stricken mother, carrying a dead child out of a fire, cut to an actress playing a sweet matron selling a deodorant. The title of the chapter uh, from which uh, that little excerpt was read uh, is Now This. Now This. And I think that this uh, phrase, Now This, which every television viewer uh, uh, is familiar with, uh, is a kind of new grammatical uh, part of speech studs. It's a, it's a sort of a conjunction that, uh, but instead of connecting one thing with another, is intended to do the opposite, to disconnect, so that the image of this mother carrying a dead child uh, out of a, out of a, a, a blaze uh, is, is diffused, is made trivial, is driven from your mind by the newscaster saying, now this. And then yeah. we go right into a United now, the, By the way, commercial. now this is better produced, too. I mean, the commercial is better produced oh. because it's very important. Yes, the, the, uh, the commercials are, uh, for one thing, the most expensively produced things on television. And I think from an aesthetic point of view and a technical point of view, absolutely the best things done You have television. actors who are very good. You have writers who are very good. You have musicians who are very good. Directors were very good producing what? 
And so we come to that again. You see. Well, here they, comes the horror. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're producing a 30 second uh, stories or myths, if you will. Uh, and uh, uh, I think it should be said that these stories they're producing are not exactly about products. I think somewhere I say that television commercials are about products only in the sense that the story of Jonah is about the anatomy of whales. Uh, many of these television commercials are about people's um, uh, fears and about people's uh, fantasies. And that's why these people are paying oh, so much words, money to do this. In other words, it's not a question about this product being good or bad. Doesn't it's all basically right. the same. It's, it's you're not much good unless you have this product. Right. You're not much good sexually, or you're not much good athletically, not much good socially, unless you have this. So if you're afraid of being old, you know, a, as though age were an illness or a disease, something obscene, a leprosy, age, get rid of those freckles, those age freckles. That's one, isn't it? That's right. So the, uh, these uh, commercials are sort of uh, almost. Uh, quasi-religious in a way in that they they uh, communicate to people uh, what is the good life and what they ought to believe and what values they should they should have but in the context in which you asked about them the point uh, that should be made is that by uh, their being included uh, uh, almost anywhere almost randomly in any a sequence of news stories, they do have the effect of making the news stories trivial because, as you suggested, a normal person seeing uh, film footage of these mudslides in Colombia and seeing a, a, a dead child being carried out of one of these mudslides, a normal person would weep uh, or, at the very least, uh, be reflective or think about the uncertainty of life or uh, something of this sort. But the television doesn't give you time for that. Uh, there's some story or commercial waiting in the wings uh, to get its 30 seconds, and that's the function of doesn't now. doesn't give this. you time for that. That's the other telling phrase. And now we come to the key. This is throughout your book a recurring theme, that there is no sense of past, of yesterday. It is now we go ahead. Now this yes. is the commercial, but aside from now this, forget about what was, and thus we have no sense of history. No because te especially television, although other media are somewhat like this, television's um, special uh, strength is the movement of information. Not the collection of information, not the uh, uh, not introspection about information. It moves information, so, so it doesn't when, have time for the past. And it's so not Lincoln interesting. and Douglas had those debates, and Bob LaFollet spoke, and Tom Paine wrote. It was based upon past and present and learning from it and discourse and reflection and exposition. All this came, printed word or spoken word. We go beyond that now, because now we've come to something else that is almost beyond technology. We've come to something in which this is, there is no, I, when the kids, I wasn't born yesterday, my answer is no, you weren't. You were born this morning <laughs> because there was no yesterday. There is no yesterday. Yes, a and uh, when you said before, uh, uh, could you imagine the present incumbent in the White House uh, uh, using some of the phrases that uh, Roosevelt used? Uh, I think of whether or not the, uh, any politician now could give a talk in which he would make references to uh, uh, past events, historical events. I mean, one could always recall in a sentence Lincoln or Washington, but I don't mean that. I mean someone making reference to some complicated issue of the past. I think it, it just wouldn't be done because uh, uh, people don't know about them, and uh, uh, I don't even think the candidates, at least many of them, know about them. And we haven't talked about the computer, have we? the computer entering the scene as well as educator too. All this is connected with the use, again, to clear 
you, well, you, Neil Postman, someone will say, I'm the devil's advocate yes. now. What are you, for the abolition, you for the destruction of TV sets, for the destruction of computers, for the destruction of the telegraph? No, my ancestors would be this. Uh, 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 I'm not for their destruction. I am for people um, being educated to how these things work and how they work them over. And I think to the extent that uh, a citizenry is alert to both the virtues and the vices of any new medium of communication, to that extent, they are defended uh, from some of its, uh, its worst excesses. Yeah. You know, I think, could we just hear one? This happened during a Newport Folk Festival. It's sort of a postscript to Neil Postman. And it's, uh, his book is Amusing Ourselves to Death, and I think it's a powerful one. It's right on the button. Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business is the subtitle. Pete Seeger, during a Newport Folk Festival some 20 years ago, it was in the tent we're talking, and then he just finished singing a children's song, and he went on, and this is what he said. I'm sorry to say I don't know much about telling stories. Uh, Gradually, now in my 41 years, I've just barely learned how to just a little bit tell a story, but it's taken me all of this time to learn. Uh, a child learns how to talk, and they talk all the time. A man buys an automobile, and he rides and forgets how to use his legs. And the fact is, let's face it, printing was invented, and people, a lot of people forgot how to tell stories. You don't need to tell stories to your children at night. You buy them a 25-cent book at the local drugstore or, or buy them a phonograph record or switch on the radio or TV. You don't have to use your brains anymore. Uh, you don't have to make music, obviously. You don't have to be an athlete anymore. Uh, you turn on the TV and watch the best athletes in the world. Watch them use their muscles and you sit back and grow a pot belly. Uh, you don't need to be witty anymore. You turn on the TV and watch an expert be witty. You don't need to be witty anymore. And of course, the crowning shame of it all is for man and wife to sit back and watch the expert lover make, pretend to make love on this little screen there. And that's pretty much the postscript, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> Any base we haven't touched? Oh, only to stress once again that uh, the point that you've made uh, in my behalf a couple of times, that uh, I'm not um, anti-technology. I am uh, pro-awareness about technology. And I think um, uh, uh, if, to, as I said, to the extent that people are aware of what they got into, not, as Pete Seeger said, w uh, I mean, you don't even have to talk about television, what they got into when they get into their automobile or what they have got themselves into um, when they go to the movies instead of doing their own loving, then I think uh, uh, with that sort of awareness, um, we'll be all right. Neil Postman, thank you very much. Thank you.